0: You know, for me, again, as a, as, a, as a Brit or a European arriving in the U.S., the U.S. has obviously got huge um, race challenges as, and, and other things. And it's not like there aren't the same problems back home. It's just here it can be more of a life and death situation. But- mm it's on the agenda, right? It's on the conversation, like we're talking about it. And so I always find the US is this place of contrasts. You can look at it outside on the BBC and politically you're like, wow, how narrow is this place? And it's not democratic. And yet when you get down on an individual level, you've got people doing things that you wouldn't even dream of doing back home because I grew up in an area which was more than 95% white. And, you know, if there were racial sensitivities or gender sensitivities. The stock response back there was to tell people to be a little tougher and be less sensitive, right? Whereas here, people are more aware, we might be afraid of making mistakes, but people are much more aware that that those sensitivities are real and you can explore them.
1: Welcome to the 3rd season of the Hardwood Podcast, a program dedicated to sharing ideas, thoughts and voices of respected professionals in environmental studies that care about diversity, equity and inclusion. They all have lived and work experiences to add to their outlook and understanding of diversity, equity and inclusion, and we here on the Hardwood Podcast are committed to sharing the voices of these individuals as well as making space for others to ponder our dialogues. Greetings, everyone, from whatever time you're watching this, whether it's morning, afternoon, or evening. It's Dr. Thomas Rashad Easley here today. Another episode of the Hardwood Podcast. And we are so fortunate, okay, to have with us today one of our very own, from the Yale School of the Environment, one of our very own professors, okay, my friend, Dr. Mark Bradford, and one thing he and I both have in common is we have a condition to another off And that's the University of Georgia in Athens. My friend, how are you doing today?
0: Very well. Thank you, Dr. Easley. What I want is to be able to speak as eloquently as you in, in the in those monologues. But um, <laughs> see how I do.
1: <laughs> what well, I think it's gonna be real fun today, buddy, uh, because uh, you know, you were one of the well put like this, you know, the, the part of the, the part of the heart of this podcast is to kind of deal with an intersect in an intersectional way matters of the heart, the environment. You know, that's why we just say heartwood. And we um, you know, and we want to speak to people from various parts of how we deal with the environment, whether it's on the grounds, whether it's as a researcher, you know, as yourself, as a researcher and as a scholar, you know, or whether it's like for business, so on and so forth. And so we, uh, I, I think we're gonna have fun today because this is really about you. And I just, I really, I mean, for real, I know you make me feel like just crazy. Like, I definitely think you're an amazing person, though. Look up to you. I mean, you've been very successful early in life, and you also are trying very hard to work on DEI in a number of ways. Okay. And so I just want us to have a conversation about that, um, you know, to just just as friends on this podcast episode today and I want to start a different way because you're the first person I get to ask this question and I get to do it with a couple of other people after you. Can you share how you became a faculty member? Like, tell me some more about yourself. You know what I mean? you know, you're, you, I know that you're from a different part of you know, like of the world. You've come in here with all this great brilliance that you already have, but tell us a little bit more about Professor Mark Graff.
0: I think um, it's, it's a great question. So um, you can cut me off if I go too long, but um... You know, I, I think when I first got involved, I was too naive in, in academia and academic research. I was too young, too naive to, to know what I was doing or to think beyond. So in England, um, where I'm from the north of England from about seven miles from Liverpool Stadium, the, the soccer team. And when um, when I, when I uh, we do our degrees in England at 18, you finish at 21, right? You don't know much when you're 21 or at least I didn't know much when I was 21. Um, I was planning to go off and do all sorts of different things. I was actually thinking about being um, a naval air force pilot, believe it or not, and uh, one of my professors turned around and said, "Hey, do have you thought about doing a PhD?" And I said, "You know, uh, people in America have to work really hard for PhDs, so I feel like a little bit bad about sort of like revealing this story from way back then." And I was like, "No." He said, "Well, look, let me know in a week. I just got money for a PhD, and I'm going to advertise it. But if you want it, you know, you're doing well in your, in, in this class. And it was on atmospheric chemistry, so it was climate change and increases in in trace gases." And he's like, it's going to be all around like climate change and trace gases and your interest in the environment. This is like sort of saving, you know, saving the world, but without a cape. Right. It's like a <laughs> Superman or Supergirl, but but without the fancy uniform. So, uh, you know, I, I thought I thought about it for a week. And um, my girlfriend at the time who's now my wife was off in France and was coming back for another year on campus. And I was like, you know what? That's a, it's another year. And I get to do something I'm interested in. Um, so I took it. So three years later, um, actually, I, I ended up moving. I ended up moving to the north of England and working with government labs, which was actually great because then the PhD became a job. we um, okay. worked with with research scientists who were just were doing it as their day job. And so it was a very different environment to be sort of squirreled away in one of these government labs in the back then, in the middle of nowhere because of things like terrorism threats. But a lot of them were environment, and they, were, you know, we were not doing the the top secret stuff on chernobyl radioactive fallout and things so i was doing my work um, i got towards the end of that and again i was thinking you know what do i do now maybe i go to a journal like nature and become an editor or maybe i should revisit the navy and um and again same girlfriend living down in london um was working in the city at that point and i was like you know what um i've worked on soil and it turns out that working on soil was a really dumb career move at the time there were going to be no jobs and just as i finished the US and the UK both put out this big research program where they basically said that we know less about the biology of life in soil than we do about the surface of the moon or Antarctic deep waters. And so all of a sudden there were these postdocs all over the place. And um, I ended up going, well, if I wanna get down where my girlfriend is, has been going on for a while now. I applied for a job at Imperial College in London, which is our big sort of one of our big STEM universities. Mm -hmm. And um, because there were very few people who had been dumb enough to do a PhD in soil, ended up down there as a postdoc. So three and a half years, I was was down in London with her. We had a baby living in London, 330 square. I told you it was a long story, 330 square foot apartment. One of my advisors came around. I was talking to him, he was like, where do you want to go next? And I was like, I want to go to America, right? I mean, it's America. This is like where movies come from. It's Hollywood. It's everything. Um, and this is where, you know, some of the academic nepotism kind of comes in, but maybe to a certain extent, it's sort of, if you're doing your job, he's like, well, I've just heard Duke wants someone that does exactly what you do. Mm -hmm. And lo and behold, I thought Duke was maybe in California, but you know, I ended up in North Carolina, my favorite state in the U S now, I love the mountains and the coast, but I moved across Duke. I was already in a second postdoc. So now I'm about 28. I've got a baby. I've got a wife who's dependent because we're immigrants. We're on J visas. Um, and for the first time, you know, I got here into the US and I saw real ecosystems like forests, which were huge. So eastern deciduous forests. I was like, this is one quartieth of the world's forests. It's managed, it has a big impact on the carbon cycle. Um, these are things that I that I care about. And while I was there, my advisor, at Duke, again, it's often about individuals. I've always had really supportive advisors. They were they were doing a faculty interview in biogeochemistry, and he said, Come along to every single faculty interview, and we'll go for lunch afterwards. we we'll talk about what people did well and what they could do, and where their research is going, and basically sort of prepped me for thinking about faculty careers. So within a year of being there, I started applying. Um, and that's where our common interests can, come in. Right? I got a faculty right. job at the University of Georgia, Athens. Um, go as, as a consequence, now a football fan, didn't expect to be so. Um, <laughs> R.E.M., maybe even some country music. Yes. Yeah, so the dogs, right? Um, we're not going to talk about Alabama though, or anything like that, on this particular podcast. No. Um, but anyway, so um, I was at, I was at Georgia for about three years, and the job, um, basically, the school, the, the Yale School of the Environment back then, School of Forestry and Environmental Studies, was essentially for our traditional forestry program. You need a soil person on the books to be accredited by the Society of American Foresters. So, yeah. so uh, they reached out and said, um, "We're going to have a search for a soil person. Are you interested?" Um, and I said, no. So I hung up the phone, Professor Mark Ashton, friend of both of ours, <laughs> and said no. Said no. <laughs> um, you know, I, I think some of that is, is like, you know, where do you fit, right? I, I didn't grow up in, a, in, a, in an environment which was academic or elite universities and so on and so forth. Even if you have sort of started moving through them to Imperial and to Duke, you know, you question whether you fit. Some people called me up, including my advisor from Duke used a few swear words about what an idiot I was, and said, call them back. So I called them back, and um, Mark Ashton said, sure, apply. 10 years later, right? Oh, so cool. And I'll tell you what it was—it was one of the best moves because down in Georgia, I mean, I love Georgia. And if you spit down in yeah. Georgia, you hit an ecologist. If you're in an ecology or an environment, you got so many colleagues around the place. And I was next door to the yeah. forestry school there, um, but I was in a basic research department. And I think the reason I'd originally got into doing that PhD was I was interested in climate change and actually solutions. And so the opportunity to come up and then see a school where basic research was valued, but also that you know, a bulk of our program is really around practice and applied work. Um, even though it's taken me a while to really learn how you start transitioning to more applied questions, that was a really appealing point in my career. It's a, it's a huge upheaval after three years at a place system this university, move your lab because you're just starting to get going and, you know, it takes a while to kind of get research established and everything, but um, that move, I don't regret. I feel like Yale opens doors and people talk about that. And, you know, sometimes you shouldn't step through those doors, but one thing that it does do is it does allow you to position yourself to, to really address questions that you think are important.
1: Look, okay, here's the thing. So here's a commonality, okay, between you and I, which we already established from, you know, like UGA. I feel like I came, you know, from NC State to here. You know, and you were, a, a, you know, definitely a, a pleasant, you know, uh, and good part of even my, my whole interview process. I, one of the reasons why I said, you know, say yes to Yale is because I, um, coming from an institution that values that they they value DEI, the thing that I really loved about being here at Yale is that they didn't just value; they wanted to do something. Right, and so. You know, and so that whole, lot, you know, so at first I'll be honest, when when Yale even called, called me up, you know, I was just like, Yale who? Like I thought they were, they were yelling, <laughs> not Yale University, <laughs> like, Yale who, you know, but then when they said what they wanted to do, we were creating this position and we really want to do this work, I went, all right, well, uh, then let me take a chance since you want to take a chance on me. You know, and so I, I feel like that's a commonality that we have, you know, like that, like, you know, led me to it. I, I didn't come from, you know, like this pedigree, didn't understand it myself. And I'm still learning, obviously, being here three years now. But uh, that, that I just want to say that I feel like that's something that we have in common. Um,
0: and I'm guessing know, that was you and I having that conversation because I ended up being the chair of the of the search, right, which was set up to do. Now, that, I mean, again, it's yeah. all a story of individuals. You know, I got here, I don't think, um, you know, DI was definitely, it was being discussed. We had, um, you know, there were efforts across campus. Students were so much more aware of it than I, than I think than the bulk of us as, as like staff and faculty. But um, it's the individual, right? It, it was Indy Burke when she came in as dean, whatever it is now, four year, about four years ago, who set up a strategic plan. And it was that strategic plan, you know, so when um, I think, you know, you know the story, but when I got tenure here, um, the dean came up to tell me, yep, they've given you tenure, you're, you're a full professor. I don't think she took a breath. And she said, and I'm going to launch a strategic plan and I want you to be in charge of diversity. Right. And I feel like that was a huge turning point within the school. But I remember thinking "It's like, well, wait a minute. Have you have you looked at me? I'm like this white male, right? That's, you know, um, yeah, am I really the person to lead it? I think, you know, I think she was very aware of some of the limitations or some of the challenges around things like stereotype bias in a more primarily maybe white male dominated environment that it would be more challenging for someone with a different gender identity or race identity to be able to sort of take on and push through some, some initial elements. So I think she was thinking strategically, but, but knew a lot more than I did at that particular point but i think that was what really you know i was doing work in terms of writing into grants and and trying to set up programs and i was aware of issues around things like summer flood for lower economic students and trying to create a bridge between high school and stem degrees to try and keep students in stem and make sure they're matriculated but i hadn't been thinking about it in the much more comprehensive way that you now lead in the school to sort of educate us around structural barriers, um, institutional barriers and how we might actually kind of work against them. So I feel like yeah. it's been four years of just huge um, growth, but also you get smaller as you grow because you realize the multiple layers of the challenges. Yes, but there, but you know, but there's
1: something I want to see. I didn't notice, you see, you're I'm, I'm learning as I'm listening to you. To me, you're still describing what I would consider building blocks that lead to doing this kind of work, because if you're working with high school students, that means you're dealing with youth. If you're trying to keep people in the STEM, that means you're trying to bring people into a field that stem across multiple identities, whether it's race or gender or age, it's tough to keep people engaged in them. So I think that, and then that fact that you came from another type of institution. So I think that you know, you know, our, our, we both have the same the same supervisor. I think that there were building blocks that she also saw that that also I think signified yes, I need someone who can lead this because they're doing work in a different way than other people, which means you can see it from a different angle. You know, and so from there, I'd like to ask you. I don't think there's a there's a right or wrong answer. I think it's just a question of, But you know, I'll do about like sharing mine. Sure. Like, um, like I wanted to ask, I would ask you a lot. Say your philosophy, or your understanding um, of diversity, equity, and inclusion. For me, um, like, okay, well, I, I look at it like this. My philosophy and understanding is instead of just saying equity and inclusion, I'm just going to start with diversity. Diversity to me only means difference. Well, that's all it means really. And when I bring the equity and inclusion piece in, that tells me the how I view it or how I value it. And if I value the difference between you and other people well, then I'll try to establish fairness as best as I can in a place that has hierarchy. I say as best as I can. Fairness isn't necessarily uniform, it's just that it tries to be equitable you know? And so that means that we may do things in different ways for different groups, but we're always trying to work things out for people because we want everyone to have what they need to do their job. Now, I'm saying in the workplace, that's the way that I see it. I know that I could probably add more, but that's really how I see it. I'm curious, how do you or do you have like a philosophy or understanding of DEI?
0: Um, yeah, I feel like it's actually interesting because even when we apply for faculty jobs here in the US, people ask us about our teaching philosophies Mm -hmm. and you know and brits you know we generally don't really have very much philosophy apparently we just like we have ideas well yeah i'll teach a class this way but the same around um the same around di i like your framing of diversity as just being difference and really that it's the equity and inclusion bit that everybody's like a allowed a, a bite of the apple um if that makes sense and everyone should be allowed an equal size bite of the apple um but some people might actually need a bigger bite because they're hungrier, right? For whatever reason, maybe, maybe because they haven't been given as many apples before. I'm, I will get off the fruit analogy in just one second. Um, you know, I think the difference that made to me over the last few years is there's that fairness aspect that I think that many of us think that we have just morally and ethically that um, I like to think that most people are pretty good people on an individual level. So most of us want to be pretty fair and we want to be pretty inclusive. Um, but I think the philosophy starts to build. I mean, I don't know enough to have the philosophy in terms of how I move through the world, but borrowing from lots of other people and then you're just your own experiential knowledge. I think mm-hmm. you realize that just by sort of, just by being fair and trying to be a good person to individuals isn't enough. Mm-hmm. Um, and so my, my philosophy, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to steal the philosophy. And I don't know if this is a true philosophy, but Beverly Daniel Tatum in in the mm-hmm. book, very famous book, obviously, right? Why all the black kids seem to get in the cafeteria? Yep. Builds this um, this idea of a moving walkway, the kind of ones that you have at the at the airport. And so the idea is, if you know, if you're a certain gender or race, so white male, for example, you've essentially had a moving walkway. right? even if you stand still on that walkway, you're moving faster than everyone else around you, who's having to work harder to kind of keep the same pace because they're not actually on the walkway. Um, and that in order to be able to, to change any things up, to be fair, um, it's not just about stepping off the off the walkway. It might actually, you might have to turn around and walk back against it. And ideally you dismantle it as well, but but it's being constructed by individuals. So um, mm-hmm. I think if I have a philosophy around it is the equity and inclusion bit is to, is, is to either put everyone on that walkway or to essentially just remove the walkway in, 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 the, in the first place or put some of the people that have been historically disadvantaged on the walkway, right? To essentially try and turn the tables and not just level the playing field, but sort of um, level. That's where the equity, I suppose, as opposed to equality comes in, right? If you've got to slope the playing field in one direction, I think that's important as well. Otherwise, the diversity component is going to move, I think, too slowly.
1: Mm-hmm. Ooh. yes. Okay. Was that okay. your answer, Thomas? <laughs> no, 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 that's good. And I love how you brought up Dr. Tatum's work because, I mean, that's one of my... that you you, you referenced one of the... Uh, some would even say maybe one of the Bibles or one of the sacred texts, you know, of people who do DEI work because I think she wrote the book in the 90s, but there have been at least another... It's another edition, and you use one of the critical philosophies of how she breaks down how people should see themselves engaging in this work. So you know what? Okay, so you just made me think about something. You made me think about how... DEI influences my work. I, I, so here, here's how one way that it does. Uh, uh, like, I show up at work, you know, identify as a black male. You know, I, I walk into work and let's say from a race perspective, I could think in a victimized way, if you will, you know, like, sure. oh, it's not a lot of black people here. Am I welcome here? You know, I I, I I could go through that or I could, but what I prefer to do now is I think more so from the from the privilege lens, I, let's say from the male lens. And I walked in, I'm like, well, well uh, maybe black and a male, I'm still a male. And so I know that leadership, for the most part, still at the university, it, it is, you know, like, you know, working to balance out with the deans in particular, but it's still mostly male leadership. So then I go, OK, being that I know there's mostly male leadership, I'll leverage my influence or my power, or whatever I have to help out people who are not, you know, in a position. Let's say if I'm hiring somebody, which I have, I'll I work to uh, make sure that they have a fair wage or, you know, a fair salary. You know, I, I want to talk to them before they start the job to see, you know, what their needs are. So when they start, they don't have to begin from behind. Like they don't have to begin thinking, oh, you didn't look out for me. They can begin going, oh, wow, I started off pretty okay, and I just know that because, in general, women make less than men, you know, and that's just one example of how I apply the gender or the gender equity or gender expression lens to my work. What I'd like to do, and that's just one way, I'd like to ask you, you know, how how do you see DEI influencing you or how you work or just how you, you know, show up at work with colleagues or your students or
0: even with peers, you know, like me or, you know, like with other professors? Yeah, no, I think that, that's... Um... That's a really interesting question. So I, I think there's two different ways depending on which hat I'm actually trying to, trying to wear and who I'm interfacing with. Okay. Um, and I would say that, you know, just coming back, you just mentioned Dr. Taylor that's like one of her most powerful philosophies. I think one of the reasons why that particular book is also really influential, if you read it, it's pretty practical, but it doesn't construct guilt or even negative self-doubt, which I feel like, you know, I know that when you walk into a space, you, it feels like you own it, right? When you walk in, like I know who you are, you walk in with your you create the identity that you expect other people to actually have of you, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that's powerful. But I think in her book, I think what she she doesn't do is she doesn't pull guilt on people and negative self-doubt. She creates what I like to think about as constructive self-doubt, right? Which which causes you to constantly reevaluate yourself and grow without necessarily crucifying yourself under the particular behavior that you just had, or the behavior you had last week. It's like, I know I'm going to fall into traps because and again I'm not giving society any any role but just cuz I'm conditioned in this way so I'm going to keep slipping into whatever rut but if I, as long as I'm keep trying to climb out of it and change it. So I think when I'm dealing on a colleague perspective um and one on one there's nothing programmatic but I think as we learn from you know from you and from your office um and then from other people and other opportunities that are made available to us what you get to do is sort of it's not a true program, but you just get to sort of behave in the way that you wanna be. And you hope that you can create a spirit around enough collegiality that when it's you yourself or if somebody else starts falling into all of the traps, which actually run counter to equity and inclusion, as I think the more knowledge you gain and the more you practice it, you can help your overall group Um, or or the the overall group dynamics not fall into it. So that's one thing that I would try and do. And I recognize that, you know, as a full professor we have here at the schools, you know, what we call the Board of Permanent Officers. But the idea is is that Board of Permanent Officers are really a governance committee for the school um, and so get to shape some of the decisions. And so therefore, if you're in that role, you are one of a number of individuals sitting at a table that get to influence decisions about shape, shaping where the school is going. So I think it, it's really important to, as constructively as possible, bring people along with you as, as you get lessons and, and ask people questions in a way that that cause them to kind of consider and maybe grow differently or, or view things differently. I think the other thing that um, I try and do a lot is, is one of the, the, the things that I most enjoy about that I'm involved in the school, and I was sort of dropped into it by um, Mark Ashton, is I now teach on one of the um, incoming modules that, that, that we have. Um, I didn't know a lot about it, admittedly, but it's a residential module at Yale Myers Forest, which is about an hour um, north of, of the school. So mm-hmm. We have a really nice campus and we get about 50 incoming students each week across three weeks and I work with PhD instructors, some other faculty within the school, and then also a whole set of master student teaching assistants. Um, so you greatly create this great little team. You're in residence. You're getting to have breakfast, lunch, and dinner with everyone. You start off early with field exercises, and you're in the classroom even like at nine o'clock at night. Um, and generally, that's when I leave. But what that does is it introduces every incoming master student within the school, and you know and 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 because i'm one of the first people you get to see i think it's made me very aware this idea of inclusivity and making sure that everybody feels like they belong we work really hard as, as a team i think um and and everyone shares that to make people comfortable to make you know that you're welcome and that we want you to be who you are with your identity because it brings something we don't want you to conform to a particular say outdated yale model which is a caricature, which no longer exists and you don't have to wear a blue blazer right with a pair of khaki trousers and like that there is no uniform necessarily um and so that shapes then how i talk which examples i use in in teaching and again we we talk about these things as inclusive teaching practices and so they are but they're really just about creating an inclusive space all around right go and have breakfast with with this set of international students go and have breakfast who may may have, you know, English may be a second language and it may not be um, as necessarily, they may not be familiar with with being in big group settings where people are throwing things around more quickly. So make sure you you single people out then and make sure you're making time for like one-on-one conversations. It's all about, I think, just trying to work out who people are and what their own identities are rather than prejudging necessarily what their identities are. Because obviously we know plenty of internationals like myself who have no problem What's, what, whatsoever in big group spaces, but even for um, I think for many international students that speak British English, right? I've been in settings where we find like American accents sometimes difficult, and American jokes sometimes pass us because there's a there's a, a British English um, legacy and cultural legacy um, across there, and so I can I can adapt to those kind of settings. But so yeah, I, th- I think it shapes it just shapes just general behaviour. Like say hello to everybody. Right. Yes. We use yeah. examples. The second slide I think I show at MODS um, is is, is um, Wangari Mathatais. Um, program from the 1970s. It's about forests, it's about restoration, it's about rural livelihoods, it's about empowering um, women that were under judgery in, in Kenya. Um, it's a great example as we talk about all these forest restoration programs 50 years later, almost like they're brand new in terms of engaging with communities, and there she was almost 50 years ago She already had the presence of mind to know that environment and social and and welfare and equality and opportunity all went hand in hand. So if you're gonna talk about global forest restoration efforts, use her as the example, like she kicked it off. Wow. See, okay, here we... (laughs) See, I always love talking to you,
1: Mark, because like I said, your humility always precedes you. (laughs) You just practically explain something that people can do, for real, at the beginning of a class, and you gave the full philosophy around it. You're helping people feel comfortable and you're helping them to belong. I know I have to talk a certain way. I know that I need to probably make space for one-on-one time. That means you need to help people feel welcome. And then in my teaching, I'm going to acknowledge someone from a different culture, let alone continent, and show you that even some of what we're doing now can trace back at least decades to a different culture. Okay, so anyone listening, I want you to hear this this individual whenever I ask him what he's doing as relates to DEI he always thinks he's doing nothing (laughs) and but that's a good sign because that means that you are intentionally doing what you need to do to connect with the students and it's not necessarily for DEI you're just intentionally trying to do what you need to do with students and so and and I want to thank you for that, because to me, that's one of the things that people need to get to. It's just a part of what you do. And, you know, and so the fact that you can share that, I think, is very powerful. So now I want to ask you about something. It's a, and, and it's about insight, you know, in my opinion, because I think that you have some to share because of what you're doing. Can you share any? Well, will you share any insight about how you think DEI has either helped improve your your pedagogy, which in my opinion, I think you just did. So you don't have to go there. So then if you don't want to answer that, how about this? Maybe talk about maybe how DEI, you see it, how we can help your discipline, whether it's in academia or whether
0: it's soil science. So whichever one you will want to answer. I can, pedagogy, give you a little, I can give you a little bit of both if you like. You know, I was, I mean, just give you a recent yeah. example. Um, yeah. Scholar Strike. And you know, you know, mm-hmm. 20, depending on Twitter, it was like, let's take two days and let's go and learn about DI issues. You know, and semester started late. We had all of these students. I was teaching in-person classes. My um, students had a lot of disruption already from COVID, and I was like, well, is this fair? Is it fair to all of these to, to all of these individuals to to basically say I'm not going to teach for the next two days, even though you've got you've had all these disruption to all of your teaching and now you physically made it to new Haven and we're under all of these rules, or can I use that as a learning experience for myself and for you? And so send out an email, acknowledge that it's there, invite people if they want to. And, and I use an example of just like raise one individual that you think has had a strong impact on some area of the environment to do with the class, but hasn't been acknowledged. Right. And for me, It also got me, you know, it was a learning experience as well which you didn't expect. I was looking up um, sort of two different kind of ideas and one's called Arcadian and one's called Imperial Ecology. And so, you know, modern modern science and conservation in, um, in, at least in the Western world since about, you know, the last 300 years has been very much about human dominating the environment and so okay. we tend to have this conception of humans are separate to the environment obviously at the school we talk about it a lot about humans being embedded within the environment mm-hmm. you know, depending on which culture you're coming in from to the school um you might be coming in always thinking that humans were embedded in the environment you learn that from the students right it's like well actually what you just gave to me was a colonial perspective and you can trace it all the way back in actual fact that it was it was francis bacon Kind of came out with it. He was pushing imperial ecology, and then there was this British ecologist guy called Gilbert White, who was a um, he was a vicar, who was educated through Oxford. So, like, I'm not going to pretend that he was um, something special. He was definitely from the gentleman's club way back, moneyed, and you know, take his time to kind of think. But his his Arcadian ecology approach was that humans embedded within the environment and to live more humbly and to try and have a humble effect and only take what you need. Whereas the imperial ecology was humans through ingenuity and their own thinking dominate the environment it was then linnaeus who came up with the latin binomial the whole naming of species that really championed imperial ecology and it took off at that particular point i mean it was used by people like haeckel who came up with the term ecology and obviously a lot of his thinking shaped nazi germany and their kinds of approaches right so you look at some of the influences that these people had um on whoever wasn't of the majority of able-bodied white males in many instances were were essentially just going to have like a really terrible bum deal for a number of hundreds of years at the same time arcadian ecology had been there by someone who studied at oxford who was an ecologist that many british ecologists who are you know a generation above me would have been reading his particular that's the score i apologize um i've been reading his um have been reading his books. And so, but it shaped so much about what we do now as a modern conservation movement, right? So Uh just being kind of aware, like knowing that Scholar Strike was out there and suddenly dig into it. My whole class is on managing ecosystems and how we might manage it and putting up what I thought were much newer ideas around this planetary perspective where scientists tell people what to do, which is the way that we've sort of been doing modern science, versus mm-hmm. working more directly with local communities, which we talk about a lot at the school. And here I am getting a history lesson in an area where I went and talked to a bunch of ecologists and said, have you ever heard of imperial and ecology? I'm like, no. I was like, it's on the Wikipedia page if you look up ecology, which is just <laughs> blows my mind. right? Um, <laughs> So I think that just that that level of curiousness, right, and then I can come back and actually introduce it to the students. But I understood a lot more, kind of historically, where things came from. But also, it it starts to tie your field directly in conservation within ecology directly with things like you um you know basically eugenic kind of perspectives and so on and so forth, mm. right? Mm-hmm. So I think by by translation that really helps for you to then say okay how does thinking about diversifying in my field potentially help me and there's a there's a lot of things that that question always worries me because it seems very utilitarian right Uh, i think one of the benefits i have for example of being at a school which is has multiple disciplines represented is, is that i get to ask questions i get to see how my colleagues and this could be students postdocs faculty staff whatever they get to view questions through different lenses and when you, through, you view questions through different lenses, you often come up with novel ideas. Or well, basically you realize like just how naive you've been being. And so I'm looking, you know, you're, you're looking at that, those kinds of things you're thinking, wow, that's great. Um, I think to a certain extent, diversity, and it can be in multiple different settings, right? You're getting people that have been seen and observed the world differently because of how they get treated by individuals, but also how they treat themselves and also just in the different spaces they're being. So it's another way of shaking it up, but that seems very utilitarian. I'd like to think that it was more about equity and inclusion and fairness should be our primary mm-hmm. motivation. So even if it didn't help the field, just do it. Mm-hmm. But we know actually there's plenty of peer reviewed literature to say the more international scholars, the more diversified in terms of race or gender your, um, your author list is. Um, often the more influential your paper might be, maybe even more citations it gets, but probably potentially just because there's more creative thinking kind of gone into it. And I don't know whether it's about all the different perspectives there, or whether or not if you've got all of those different folks coming together, whether the, each person is actually working, is just more open to different ways of viewing the world. So I'm not gonna argue there's like a clear causation But just the very fact that you're working with people that you might not traditionally work with, that you may have felt uncomfortable to be in a room with because you're like, I don't even know how to get on the same page with you culturally. And so I'm going to be a little bit more distant. I'll go talk to the person that is more familiar to me. Just being open to being a little bit more curious in a positive kind of way and recognizing that you're uncomfortable, but maybe in a good way, could just make Mm -hmm. your science better. (laughs) Wow. Okay, okay oh, Kenneth, wow. can you surprise that for me? You know, I I just go off on these things, and then so, and then you just still. No,
1: <laughs> this was great. No, I need what well, one. I needed to hear this from you, but I but I'm glad that you said this on this platform and on the podcast because um, you know I just you know what I almost want to say. Pause on Professor Bradford. You know. Look, when I did my dissertation, so this is now more than seven years ago, I talked to a number of scientists. You would have been one of the people, if you were at the institution I was doing the research at, I would have tried to talk to you. And a number of people, most of the folks, I don't call them subjects because we're all humans, but most of the people I talked to, when I asked them what they were doing that's related to diversity, they will find it hard to, to, to answer me. But then when they start telling me about their practice, just as you were doing, and then they start telling me about what they do in, in, the, in, the, in the classroom space or in their lab. And then when they tell me why, which is why I started this off with asking how you became a faculty member. There's so much jewels and gems that they have to share, but they're just running it out of their mouth. And I'm sitting there taking those like, looking <laughs> at them like, "You are you not listening to yourself? And that's why I'm sitting here with just a big smile on my face, you know, because uh, you've been one of my, I mean, I really love working at YSE, but you've been one of my favorite colleagues. Uh, you know, like to always work with because you, you actually do the work, you know, in the school, outside of the school. And then I think, like I say, your humility is what speaks before you let, you know, what you know to speak, you know, but that response, thank you, sir. And I just got one more question for
0: you then. Uh, I mean, one thing just to acknowledge back to like, you and I are both in this great environment. I mean, again, you bring it, but we're both in this great environment where we constantly get challenged by other people's opinions you know for me again as a as a a brit or a european arriving in the u.s the u.s has obviously got huge um race challenges as and and other things and it's not like there aren't the same problems back home it's just here it can be more of a life and death situation but it's on the agenda, right? It's on the conversation, like we're talking about it. And so I always find the US is just this place of contrasts. You can look at it outside on the BBC and politically you're like, wow, how narrow is this place? And it's not democratic. And yet when you get down on an individual level, you've got people doing things that you wouldn't even dream of doing back home because I grew up in an area which was more than 95% white. And you know, if there were racial sensitivities or gender sensitivities. The stock response back there was to tell people to be a little tougher and be less sensitive, right? Whereas here, people are more aware, we might be afraid of making mistakes, but people are much more aware that that those sensitivities are real and you can explore them. So I think that we get it as a great microcosm here within the school that you really can't shut yours. If you want to learn or you want to query yourself, it's coming at you all the time from intelligent individuals with so many different life experiences in a culture, the American culture, which at least on the coast, as far, you know, where I've only lived on the East Coast, even in Georgia and North Carolina, people are really open to talking and exploring these kinds of ideas. You don't shy away from them or try and belittle them. And again, we've seen that. I think that openness has really been magnified over the last few years, um, and then magnified for the wrong reasons much more recently um, but still, it's, it's it's there. So I think that's huge. But anyway, mm-hmm. sorry, your oh, final question.
1: Oh, no, 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 you're good. Well, the final question really is, we talked about, you know, work, we talked about your philosophy, your, you know, just you and your past, and how you got here. Is there anything that I didn't ask, you know, just keeping in mind what the podcast is about that you would like to share or, or would you like to just make a comment about just something currently that's going on and that'll be it, Doc.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think you give me a lot of credit for doing a lot of stuff, which is which is not programmatic, but which is underneath the the. If you feel like, it's underneath the radar. It's just like how you behave each day. Um, mm-hmm. But I, I actually think that's really, you know, I just want to kind of acknowledge. I think that's really difficult. So I have like a secret power, right, or um, secret superpower, and it's accountability. I mean, you know, there's like I go home. Um, two of my kids are adopted and multiracial, right? So I, I go home, I leave the work environment, and you may have been talking about DEI or think about DEI or however it shapes, um, but I, and I don't leave it behind, right? It's at the dinner table, we're talking color. You know, back when I grew up, people would talk about, you know, in classrooms, they talk about skin color for the color of um, what I would call a felt tip marker, what color you would use. The skin color would be this light pink. At my dinner table, you know, like skin color is, this shade of brown, this shade of brown or this, you know, this this slightly light um, pink, depending on which family member you're actually kind of talking about. So I don't get to leave it behind ever. Um, and that's pretty inventive. I also get to see that um, the consequences of minor actions every single day have potentially huge cumulative consequences for my kids. Right. So there's a lot of um, self-interest there in just promoting and supporting my children and creating a better environment. But I think it's more that it's, it's really easy for us to like you know, me to walk down the street, right? You, you can identify me in one particular way. And I'm not under, no one saying, Oh, based on your gender or your, or your race, that they're not making assumptions that we might often, um, considered be, um, negative or, um, in, in some way. Um, mm-hmm. but and so it's easy to, to a certain extent to to slip back down into your usual behaviors. Right. I think when you leave and, and I think one of the, the greatest strengths of diversity, which I think we haven't really acknowledged and we, we sort of get to this hump. But as we start to diversify our workplace and that's where I think the diversity bit becomes really important is okay. you get to see you get colleagues and friends and other individuals and our, um, around the place that are different to you with different experiences. It can be a a woman, it can be a black man, it could be um, an Asian American, but everyone's got different experiences. And as you develop like friendship and trust, messenger matters. So that when you fall into the trap of, oh, of essentially confirmation bias or something and giving someone a pass in a particular area when probably you shouldn't have, if you were looking at it, you sort of, I like to think you slip back down in the rut that you're trying to constantly climb out of and get to a, to, a, to a new space, but it's easy to slip back down into it. If one of those messengers, who's now a friend, colleague, trusted individual comes up and can say something, or it may not even be a direct critique of you. It might just be, oh, can you believe that, that what that person just said? That's not That's not on. It constantly keeps you checked. And so I think one of the biggest Mm -hmm. benefits, equity inclusion of diversifying is just that it just makes us much, much more open to different perspectives and it becomes ingrained. Like if you want, you retrain society around that moving walkway. I think the only way you're gonna get there is through more and more integration where difference is celebrated. And so you integrate Mm -hmm. with difference being celebrated as opposed to integration where we all conform to one particular behavior, if that makes sense.
1: That makes sense. Uh, well, uh, <laughs> this was a this this was an action packed or brilliant packed uh, interview here and talk, uh, which I'm not surprised. I'm just really just um just just overjoyed to have it, uh, you know, because I, I've 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 been looking forward to talking to faculty in the school, uh, you know, about this on the podcast. You know, one because I wanted to explore this with colleagues and with you, friend and colleague but explore this with colleagues, not just so that they can share with me so that those who listen can also get to see, these are the kind of people we have working here. These are the kind of professors that we have here. And if you come here, we have conscientious scholars, you know, who are intentional about their work. And Professor Bradford, I just want to thank you for your time because I know that you're busy uh, whether it's research and taking care of business, you know, or just taking care of yourself and family. So thank you so much for gracing us, you know, with your time. Thank you for sharing and being as open as you were. And, uh, and also, thank you for what you're doing. And thank you for, uh, you know, j- j- just being in this fight, you know, because it, t- it takes all of us. And uh, I-, I appreciate you as a colleague and now here as a, as a-, as a participant on-, on-, on our podcast.
0: Dr. Easley, thank you for the A, for the opportunity, B, for being such a, a like a powerful teacher, and-, and also friend, and but also, they- people can hear it on your podcast, right? The advice that you even give me, just in terms of like, how do I manage with my own kids, right? And help shape the environment to be better for them. So I appreciate it. that's where the friend bit, that's outside of work, free advice from someone who's actually trained in this particular arena. But most of all, thank you for the opportunity and for doing the doing the podcast in the first place. The Hardwood Podcast is a production
1: of the Yale School of the Environment in New Haven, Connecticut. Our producer is Nadine Damien a joint degree master's student between the Yale School of the Environment and the Yale Graduate School of Arts and Sciences, pursuing degrees in environmental management and international and development economics. I am Dr. Thomas Rashad Easley, and we'll see you next time.